It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour, we have our weekly roundtable, Armchair Politics, uh, two hours of commentary and analysis on local, state, and news headlines and current events with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. They'll be joined today by... uh, a former high-ranking uh, official in uh, two Republican presidential administrations, Mark Everson, will be back with us to join the uh, the roundtable. But this first hour, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about immigration. Um, the first hearing for the bill, Citizenship for Essential Workers Act, is underway with the Senate Judiciary Committee on Immigration and. would, if passed, offer a legal pathway to citizenship for the 5 million essential immigrant workers during the pandemic. And I'm going to talk about that and more with uh, my guest this hour, who is an immigration attorney and founder of Boston-based Goss Associates, Elizabeth Goss, returning to the show. Elizabeth, it's great to have you back. Thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for having me back. Um, let's talk about this uh, this this uh, workers act uh, citizen for essential, mm-hmm. citizenship 
for Essential Workers Act. Um, I got the impression you didn't think that was going anywhere. Well, I, I will see. <laughs> I can, I, I've, been, I've, I've become jaded over the years, I think, for, for waiting for immigration, some sort of immigration reform to come since 1990, since I started my career. Um, this one is interesting because it's, 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 it's equating essential workers as, as part of infrastructure. So they may be positioning this to somehow go through, um, you know, without having to go through uh, the regular vote, but go through as part of the budget process. So, so we'll see after these hearings, and uh, you know, the parliamentarian would have to um, rule on it. But basically, what it does is it really targets the folks who've been working so hard during um, during the pandemic uh, in healthcare, agriculture, construction, food services, energy, emergency response. Um, Caregivers, nursing home. Think of the people who work in nursing homes. So all those, all those critical pieces. Uh, that what this act does is say that those essential workers are critical to our infrastructure se sector. The people we so, never uh, noticed until there was a pandemic. Exactly, exactly. So I think that they're they're trying to position it in that sense. And what it would do, you know, I think when I was on before we talked about how in the law there's a section called 245I, and that over you know, over the series of a couple of decades has been authorized by Congress for use for people who are here, you know, have either overstayed their visas or came in undocumented. It allowed for a pathway forward for those people to be forgiven um, for that, you know, for the, the the period of time that they had an issue with their visa status. Um, it's not It's not just a blanket forgiveness. It's a fee. They have to pay a fee and they have to prove that they're a good community member and particularly they have to show that they've paid taxes. Um, you know, they paid into the, the tax system of this country. But it, it would be it would be fantastic if this were approved because it would help so many people. Uh, well, and obviously it recognizes their work. What's different between this and, and the existing uh, law? Well, the law, the, the section that I mentioned has to be authorized for use. The last time it was authorized for use was, uh, it, it sunset April, um, April, 30th, uh, 2001. So, and then the, 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 so it was, it was a long time ago that the Congress last authorized this particular aspect of our law for use. Um, I think the Bush administration was, you know, gearing up, um, to have another period of use for this. Uh, I think there were, you know, there were a lot of Republicans at that time who were very pro immigration, especially business immigration. Um, but then 9-11 happened. And so, you know, ever since then it's been buried. Uh, nobody is, there hasn't been any consideration of reauthorizing the use of this provision. And I don't know, again, it's, it's going in, um, for hearings. There'll be a lot of reform to the, the text of, of this bill when it, if it finally does go for a vote. Uh, but that, that is one mechanism I'm thinking they could use to make this happen. That's, you know, reauthorizing the use of this particular provision, which would be great. So if this didn't pass, there could be a uh, follow-up initiative to um, reactivate that section of the law that, that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there have been many attempts at reactivating that particular section of the law, but yes, they could, it, there could be another run at it and just a plain and simple reactivation. The problem with all this is numbers. You know, our system, our immigration system, we give out 142,000 green cards a year in the employment-based side of the house. 
And that includes, you know, if you're counting, if one individual applies and they're married with children, you know, her family could be, that could be four people um, that's taken off the top of that number. So we have such a low number of green cards that we actually give out per year in this, in this sector that you end up with huge burdensome backlogs. And, you know, that's happening right now, for example, with uh, people from India in particular. So you see a lot of, um, you know, we represent a lot of physicians. I have physicians who've waited 15, 20 years. They're still waiting in line to get their green card because it's just backlogged um, so, so badly. And so, you, you know, in my opinion, you create a kind of indentured servitude class uh, because we don't have the right numbers to really provide what our country needs as far as immigrant workers. That 142,000 green cards sounds like a lot. How does, can you put that in context a little bit, Elizabeth? 142,000, yeah, I mean, 140, think about it, 142,000 green cards a year, and you're talking about families, so 60 to 70,000 green cards a year for the entire country, nothing. I mean, how, you know, how big, is, that's as big as my, my town. <laughs> so you're talking about the entire nation, uh, and you think about you know the, all the in information that's coming out about our population drop. Um, we need workers from somewhere, you know. And there's this a lot of lot of evidence. Um, you, know, you look at a country like Japan. You know they're suffering from the low birth rate, and you know the fact that they need workers. Uh, we haven't we in this country have an aging population as the baby boomers start to retire, and people need to, who's going to be around to take care of them, right, to provide these services, for example. Um, we're, we're, we can't birth our way out of this problem in this country. So in, in my, for me, that number sounds minute um, compared to how many, you know, how many people there are. Uh, this, this is for the entire nation. It's not just, you know, the, the city. It's not just a, a, a state. But you understand um, what I mean, country. you know, it, it sounds even, you know, even at that 67,000 level, um, you know, the size of a small town um, coming into the country every year and getting green cards, that for most people that sounds like kind of a lot, but we don't realize that there are millions of people here at any given time I mean, we have, they've come from we have 330 else. million people uh, in the united states right that's our population so 330 million and you also think about our, our history i mean how many the the numbers this number was something that was derived in you know 19 probably even back to the civil rights 1965 so that was the number that was ascertained that was needed way back then uh and so it's a different world now and we should be more we should try we should be thinking about what the needs of the country are as far as its workers uh, and have an orderly process because we have people, you know, you have people coming through the border. Well, why are they coming? Yes, they're leaving terrible circumstances, but a lot of them are, are, are coming for, for work. And when they get through the border on the other end, they have people who are hiring them. Um, so we have to be realistic about the needs, what we need in this country as far as work, a workforce and, and adjust our system to meet the needs of the country. It's, it's, a, it's a boon to everybody. Economically, it's proven. These folks pay taxes. They're community members. Um, they're good community members, and they, they're job creators and innovators. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know obviously, uh, it's, it's a net positive. Um, for me, it, it, there's just no question that's a net positive, and I think all the evidence-based uh, 
research and, and statistics bear that out. Elizabeth, um, you mentioned a client that, or, or uh, I don't know, maybe a fictional, uh, a fictional uh, client that, you know, was a, a doctor working who'd been waiting 15 years for a green card. Mm-hmm. For professionals like that that are, that are working and waiting for a green card, mm-hmm. what is their status in the interim? Do they have a temporary visa that they can extend? Uh, throughout the process. So the, the way the law works, it does allow for extension of a specific type of visa. Like this, this is a pretty standard, you know, um, situation. So you might have somebody who's an H-1B professional visa holder. They're a physician. Um, they are from, you know, India, or uh, which is pretty backlogged. And they could be working um, and extending their H-1B visa for 10, 15 years while waiting to adjust and, and become a permanent resident, and they're just stuck in line. So they're here on a temporary visa. The temporary visa is tied to a specific employer. So they're beholden to that employer for the entire 15 years. And, you know, so somebody can get stuck. You know, how, many, how many folks do you know that stay in an employer these days for 15, 10, 15 <laughs> years? Not a lot. Not a lot. Yeah. Um, but, they're, but these are people who... Um, are are working in hospitals and clinics and um are are there any that are running their own businesses and hiring people and and uh, uh paying taxes and so on well they're they're obviously paying taxes right because you're you're sure. if you're if you're an employee of an organization you're a w2 employee you're, you're paying your taxes or you're helping the community i mean this person on you know people there are people who work in rural health care facilities um, these are understaffed, underserved areas. So there's people who commit to working in these facilities long term to help uh, populations that get cr- the critical access they need to healthcare. They're working in large medical centers and they're doing innovative research. So you know, are they are they the job creators? No, but I would say that they're the innovators and they're certainly the people who keep us healthy. So I, I, I'm, I can't I can't think of a I, I can't think of a, a facility. I, I, I can't imagine that somebody could walk into any major medical center in the country and not come across someone who, um, you know, who's here on a visa or in a, and on a pathway forward to a green card. My guest is Elizabeth Goss, and she is uh, an immigration attorney. Um, Elizabeth, I have to take a, a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks. Great. Um, the Biden administration announced its plans to reinstate the international entrepreneur rule, allowing foreign entrepreneurs to work in the U.S., and we're going to talk about what that means. And uh, and I suppose executive orders versus uh legislation when uh, elizabeth and i return in the meantime we're going to let our broadcast partners at wfov our voices radio 92.1 lpfm in flint squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break they are a broadcast service of the flint odyssey house spectacle productions and my friend paul herring and if you're streaming us at tomsumnerprogram.com We have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More about immigration with immigration attorney Elizabeth Goss is straight ahead. 
And now I dare everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-Double-G-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now on our uh, conversation about uh, immigration with immigration attorney Elizabeth Goss, uh, founder of the Boston-based Goss Associates. Elizabeth, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no problem. (laughs) Elizabeth, I mentioned before the break that uh, the Biden administration announced its plan to reinstate the international entrepreneur rule, allowing foreign entrepreneurs to work in the United States. What does that mean? Yeah, so it, it's sort of the one bright spot in the system. You know, the U.S. doesn't have a, a temporary work category or visa category designed for, um, for international entrepreneurs. And we know that you know, one in three um, founders of, of startups in the United States is foreign-born. And those, these are the folks, these are the job creators and the innovators. So they're, um, this, this, ha- this will allow, uh, under certain conditions, for folks to be able to remain in the United States at least temporarily and, get, and have a shot at creating a business and uh, having some kind of runway um, to, to, to see if their startup will survive. If it does, then does that increase their chances of uh, successfully getting citizenship? Uh, no, this this program is only about temporary stay. This has it's not a pathway forward. They would have to still try to find an option under the current system to uh, to to end up with a permanent green card and then maybe eventually citizenship. So it's not a pathway to permanent residence or citizenship, but what it does allow is for people who are interested in starting businesses in the United States, because I, you know, I think that the U.S. is still very attractive, um, you know, for, for entrepreneurs engaging um, in, in the startup community, engaging in business development. So what it, does allow, what it does allow for is at least some flexibility to let them have a shot at it. Uh, and what the visa does, the, the current system has some options, but the, or has one option, quite frankly. But the option that the current system has, the, the problem is it's treaty-based. So we have this immigrant investor visa for temporary, you know, that, that allows people to come in and temporarily start up a business. But you have, there has to be a treaty between our country and their country, and that doesn't, you know, we, we don't have treaties with, with all countries worldwide. In fact, you know, the most recent example of a country that was added, Israel is the most recently added uh, country to that list. And that only happened within the last, I think it's a year. My, my timing might be a little bit off, it might be too, but I really think it was in the last year that they were added, that there was a treaty added. In addition, it requires that the international entrepreneur has 50% ownership of its entity and the way the system works these days in entrepreneurial ventures you know usually if there's something there's something tangible um in in the company that there most companies are looking at venture capital um pretty quickly uh from startup to through the development stage and once venture capital gets involved in the business it's very unlikely that one individual owner is going to retain 50 percent of that company 
So we're missing a lot of opportunities by not allowing these people to start their businesses here. They look at other countries like Canada, Europe, um, but I but I still think the U.S. is seen as the gold standard for a lot of these businesses looking to start their companies. Can the Biden administration um, reinstate the international entrepreneur rule through executive order, or does it take uh, congressional action? <laughs> I mean, it, it, so the International Entrepreneurial Rule was never withdrawn. So that's that's the funny thing about this. The, the the Trump administration made a lot of noise about withdrawing this. This was something created under the Obama administration. You know, I have a client that went forward on it. Has been an international entrepreneur, um, international entrepreneur parole for the last few years. So the the rule was threatened to be removed, and what the Biden administration did was remove the threat. The problem with using, and it was originally established by executive action, it expanded what's called the parole authority of the United States, so what, what encompasses um, the creation of these programs. So it's similar in its creation. It's very similar to the DACA program. And, you know, we'll see if the Supreme Court lets DACA stand. And I think, you know, th this is the danger with using executive action and trying to expand and modernize the system without with you know with congress you know with with an impotent congress basically they're not they haven't worked they haven't passed immigration any kind of immigration laws in decades that have any meaning or value to the modernization of our system so you know i think the government is left to the executive branch and the agencies are left to try to do what they can to to deal with the realities of our system so it it does have it doesn't have the strength that it would if it were passed um, by Congress, but there is precedent for programs like this. And because there's regulations underpinning this, so it's, it's harder to get rid of it. So you can't just get rid of it, as, you, as we saw under Trump. You couldn't just get rid of it by saying, I don't like it. Here's a, with a signature on, a, on an order and remove it. it. It's more involved than that. So. It's... It seems like the last time we talked, Elizabeth, we spent a little bit of time, and I'd like to revisit it, talking about congressional authority and executive action. Um, does Congress have full authority over immigration, or are there things that, that can be done through executive order that would change uh, the landscape? Well, I, you know, Congress makes the law. The executive branch write, writes the rules that, you know, that um, execute on the law. So if you look at what is, the, what is the bandwidth for execution of the intent of this law, and so that's where you get into, you know, in an executive order, uh, that's where you get into the, you know, making use of some of these expanded definitions under the structure we have to create these programs in recognition that the system modernizes even if we don't have uh, reform um, what is the definition how has the definition of entrepreneurship expanded under the rule so that's that's just a very it's not like you know the very basic civics lesson i'm sure you have experts who listen to you who might cringe <laughs> in, my fifth grade, <laughs> in my fifth grade definition of this but you have you know three co-equal branches of government and it's not that one has has um, has more authority over the other. It's just you know what is your version of expansion of the definition and to be able to enact the laws that Congress passes. And so I think that what the Immigration Service and and what 
the Biden administration or any administration would say is we're acting with our executive authority to um, implement the law as was intended by Congress. So, you know, it's it's a little or bit as, tricky. It's a little bit vague, but that's sort of where we stand. Or based on our definition of what was intended by Congress. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um when you say that that Congress hasn't acted in any meaningful way with regard to immigration reform in decades, yeah. what do they need to do? What what isn't being done that should be done? I mean, there's been multiple attempts over the last, um, you know, since I since I started in this field in the early '90s. There's been there there have been some tweaks to the system, and of course after 9/11 there was um, the there was there was an act passed, but it just ended up layering on rules and not really providing a modernization or recognizing a modernization to the system. You know, for example, back in the 90s when I started, we didn't even have we weren't even using email. I think I have my first email in 1996. So, you know, the way we do business, the way we conduct business, the kinds of businesses that are being created, you know, the service industry, um, uh, you know, um, cybersecurity industry, like none of these things were even contemplated. Um, I, I don't think back in the 19, you know, back in the 1990s when the, the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the last really robust um, immigration, that, that, that's set the, that is what is, the backbone of our immigration system today is that Immigration and Nationality Act of 1990. So and there have been, you know, the Clinton administration did a little bit of tinkering around the edges with the, um, the uh, American Competitiveness Act. Um, but we haven't been able, the Congress hasn't been able to agree on what reform looks like um, over, over the decades. I mean, we had the lion, we had, Senator Kennedy and Senator John McCain, who really were the two leaders on immigration. And when they left, it's been, it's taken a while, but now we have, you know, Senator Durbin is doing a lot on immigration, um, Senator uh, Padilla. So th there are people who are working on reform, but it's always been the back burner issue. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just, you know, the way that the parties are entrenched right now, we don't, we, th there's just not, um, it's just a matter of numbers. So if you need 60 people to pass a bill to overrule a filibuster, you know, you're not going to get 10, 10 Republicans at this point to sign on to any kind of immigration reform, in my opinion. I hope I'm wrong, but that, that's what it looks like to me. The, um, I, I want to get back to the international entrepreneur rule for just, just a moment. Are mm -hmm. there... Um, are there guidelines? Are there are there yep. rules and and restrictions? In other words, someone couldn't come here under that rule, start a business, hire a manager, and then just go back. Um. So what what this really is? So where I see it mostly useful, and I've done one of these, like I said before, and yeah. where we it, it's usually people who are here who maybe were here in a PhD program or people who are here at business school and they want to start, they want to start a company. They have a good idea and they want to give it a shot. And so what usually happens is they might have a year of work authorization based on their program, but then they're stuck. What do I do next? And what this rule, and I said, as I said before, there's another program out there, but it's extremely restrictive with that 50% threshold. And there's a few other things that make it really cumbersome and burdensome. This would allow somebody who has uh, who has a ten percent ownership stake. 
Um, and but the and they they have to show that they have at least a 10% ownership stake in the company, that um, they have been funded by a venture capital firm for half a million dollars at least. They've, so they've received at least half a million dollars in VC funding, but the VC funding can't come from your, your Aunt Jane. It has to come from a company that has a history and you have to document the history of that company. They have to show that they've invested at least similar amounts in three different companies that have succeeded. So it's not just anybody who's, you know, these are, these are organizations and groups that have, you know, a, a history of, of investment. And I think what that tells the government is somebody has taken a really solid look at this company and then decided to give them money. So that's a good, that's a good factor as well. And then the third thing they have to do is show that there's some kind of national interest in their work, you know, be it um, in healthcare and education, um, you know, Cybersecurity. Um, there, there's a variety of things, and, and so you ha it can't just be any kind of business. It has to be what's the what's the national what's the national interest in this business. It doesn't have to be a, a high level national interest. It doesn't have to be like we're we're working on a cancer drug that's going to cure, you know, um, pancreatic cancer in everybody. So it doesn't have to be that tightly wound to a national interest. But there has to be something. What's the what's the there has to be some kind of hook. Um, with regards to promoting some interest of the United States. With now the, the act that's being talked about in the Senate that we talked about in the last mm -hmm. segment, um, which uh, let me get, let me turn the page here. The Citizenship for Essential Workers Act. Does that have any impact um, on? what happens at the at the southern border which is what most of us read about and hear about every day is yeah. you know we think that, that all of immigration is tied up at the mexican border <laughs> I, I it it doesn't because the essential workers act would talk would talks about people who are here um, there are other programs that have been uh, offered over the years such as guest worker programs um, to help uh, make sure that we're really keeping track of people who want to come in and out of our country. So there might be seasonal workers, people who work in agriculture, um, who only want to be here temporarily. They're very happy to return to their home country at the end of their, you know, at the end of any kind of um, work engagement period. Uh, so that that's one, that's another option that we've been fighting for for years is some kind of guest worker program for folks. Uh, if you notice that the headlines aren't as, there's not as many headlines now as there were a few months ago. That particular spike that you saw, I don't think that's any different from many other years at that particular time of year. So I think the spike also had something to do with the time of year. Um, it might have also had something to do with the, the um, it, you know, I, I just think it, it had more to do with the time of year and the normal rhythm of what we see at the border than, than anything else. I mean, of course, um, there we have concerns about how to run that border and how to make sure that people are treated humanely, and but that also our laws are executed fairly and in an organized manner. Um, but really what's happening down there, I think, is it has a long history and it's not just this year. Uh, I think that's something that's been ongoing for a long time. And management of that involves multiple country involvement. It involves work on the ground in countries so people, 
you know, there are a segment of people who will leave because they have no other, uh, no other option. Doesn't matter how how harsh the rules are once you get here. So policy of deterrence doesn't necessarily stop somebody from leaving, you know, maybe their home in Guatemala where they're under threat or their child is under threat. Um, so those are the things, you know, it's a multi-prong solution, which is going to take a lot of work, a lot of effort, and it, it, it's, not, it's not solved just by closing a border. Well, a lot of people are following the the media, and the media is is following what's happening in terms of numbers of people coming across and so on at the border, um, looking for uh, a discernible difference between the new administration and the previous administration or administrations. Is there a, a discernible difference? Is there any there there? Yeah, you know, and I. In my again, and this is my opinion. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that you know, I could I can make an argument. I was down on that border in two thousand five, when when we first started building walls. I was in Naco, Arizona, and and I remember being on the Mexican side of the border, and it was just as the, our the deal, the U.S. deal with the Mexican government at that time was no longer do we want you to have local police deal with border issues. You have got to have the federales, the military involved in that. So that was part of the deal, right? We're going to make a deal with you, Mexico, on managing this border. We ha we think we have a pro we we know we have a problem, but what we want you to do is start militarizing your border. So that was part of the deal. And I I just remember the sheriff of that local town saying to me, "What is wrong with you, Americans? It's like you know, you put up this wall." All we'll do is, you know, all these people will do will build is build tunnels, lower tunnels or higher, <laughs> higher ladders. You know, people are still going to come. You can't, you can't deter your way out of the, the vast majority of people who come either are coming because on the other side of the, the border, there's an employer waiting to hire them so they can earn money or because the situation is so bad at home that if they, they're going to take their chance because they think they're going to die anyway. So, the, the the fact that you put up all these deterrents isn't probably going to deter the people who are really fleeing for humanitarian reasons because they're going to leave anyway. They're going to take the shot. If they if you think you're going to die anyway, if I die crossing the border, at least I tried, right? That's the mentality, I think. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, people who are coming because they, they there's an economic advantage. And who's winning there? The cartels. You know, 2005 was, again, just as the cartels were trying, starting to figure out that these routes, the, the routes of human traffic were viable as an economic power for them. They started to figure out that, oh, it's unlike a load of drugs. If I lose my load of drugs in the desert, I'm, somebody's going to come after me for that money. But if I lose a load of humans, and I hate to put it in this term, nobody's coming after me for that. I've already gotten paid because I got paid before we started. You, right. It's a moneymaker. You work with uh, people, by and large, that are professionals. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, is, is there a whole different immigration system for professionals wherein American businesses are, are actually promoting and inviting them here? Yes. Yeah, the system is completely different. Um, we have, you know, we have temporary options. Uh, we have, you know, we have, so you have, 
you have this system of undocumented people and people who, you know, working in, working in undetected or on, it, they're not, um, know the word but you know you have you have the system and not kind of an underground system and then you have the system um of, of of documented people coming in on various visa types which is also very restrictive um but it only our system doesn't address the entire span of the economic needs of the country um it never has and you know there there've been there were several attempts in the 80s under Reagan to to rectify some of that there was a recognition of people who were coming in and the essential workers bill is just another iteration of that generations later we still haven't addressed the the problems with our with our immigration system um and I'm not an advocate for open borders I think we need an orderly uh realistic processing of people coming into this country but I think that pretending that we can do without immigrants or that immigrants, we can stop immigrants and there can be zero immigration, you know, that's the policy of Stephen Miller. That's just not realistic. Uh, and I don't think it's what most Americans actually want. I think most Ameri I think people actually see the value of people who come into our community and can understand the value of, of immigrants in our community and as part of our community. Um, Elizabeth, is there... Are there resources, are, are, are there people that are writing about and, and good resources for people who want to learn more about immigration that, that people can go to? Yeah, the American Immigration Council is good. Uh, on the border, for border stuff, there's, you know, there's organizations like RAISIS. Um, there's the Progressive Policy Institute. There's uh, the Brookings Institute. So there's lots of good resources for finding, you know, information online. I know um, uh, New York Times um, Dickerson, I can't remember her first name, but she does a lot of reporting along the border as well. Um, there, there's certainly, and even, I would say now, even the Biden White House, their page, they have a lot of information about, at least about immigration and about the, the attitudes towards immigrants this country now has it's been it's been an interesting change but there there is some good there there is some good information even on the, the white house um website itself but the two main organizations international students and scholars there's an organization called nasa international educators they have a lot of data which is which is easily available and then um, the american immigration lawyers association also has and they have the american immigration council which is their more public policy, public facing. Well, as we said before, immigration has uh, a lot of moving parts in this country, not just um, and not just the people, but in the system itself. And um, and and you advocate for uh, reform to that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Elizabeth, we're we're out of time but it and i can't believe how fast the time has gone the same thing happened last time you were here and and i hope that uh, that you'll come back and talk some more about this yeah no we are very very easy to talk to um and i i appreciate your your having this conversation with me thank you all right take care bye-bye that was elizabeth goss and uh she is a um recognized uh, immigration attorney and founder of Boston-based Goss Associates. And uh, we've been talking about the uh, Biden administration's plans to uh, 
reinstate the international entrepreneur rule and we also talked about uh, some legislation um, whether or not it's headed anywhere or not the citizenship for essential workers act in the uh, senate judiciary committee on immigration anyway we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more don't forget coming up at the top of the hour it's armchair politics with mark everson joining our roundtable regulars this is joe by from the blue Lions, and you're listening to the tom sumner program while we've been staying safe at home Scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I would like to take you to the opera where you are going to hear a Mozart opera, which is nothing but an opera written by Mozart. (laughs) This is an opera in one act, and it begins when the curtain rises. Otherwise, you couldn't see a thing. (laughs) The stage setting is a kind of a forest. There are two large trees which, of course, indicates the forest. It's a kind of a small forest, but it's a forest. (laughs) First, the tenor comes in. He is supposed to meet his soprano, as they usually call those ladies. (laughs) But she's a little late this particular season, so he hides himself behind one of the trees in order to surprise her when she comes in a little later, which she does. So when she arrives, she can't find him because he is occupied behind one of the trees. He's with a knife carving her name into the <laughs> scenery. Now, she doesn't know that he is there, but, uh, well, as a matter of fact, she must know it because she saw it during rehearsals. <laughs> Either she pretends that she doesn't know it or she's just plain stupid. Or <laughs> whatever it is, she gets across the stage somehow and takes place behind the other tree which for the occasion hides her (laughs) to a certain extent. Now the chorus comes in but nobody knows why except Mozart and he is dead. (laughs) And that's just too bad. Next Your father comes in, and he is a very old man, primarily because she is a very old soprano. (laughs) And he is very angry because apparently she is not his daughter. Now, this has nothing to do with the opera. I found that out myself. (laughs) And that's what we call research. Anyway, he decides that he has had enough of her, so he tells her to die, and that's exactly what she's going to do. (laughs) And with that, the opera ends, and people can go home. Now I take you to the opera house, where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. Yeah, he walks sideways. (laughs) And this is the overture. This, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. 
Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. <laughs> This little bloop is an extra bloop. <laughs> we have in case we shoot one shot of bloops. <laughs> but that has never happened, so we have a lot of bloops left over. <laughs> now the curtain rises and the tenor arrives. He's a little tall fellow. He comes in. <laughs> he comes in from the left in a single file. He goes behind the tree right away. <laughs> now the leading lady arrives. She is supposed to fill the part of the soprano. Now she not only fills it, she overflows it a little bit. <laughs> He's a big husk, a big, uh, uh, he's a big soprano, that's what she is. She's what we call a messy soprano. She comes in in a single pile. She also arrives backwards, but nobody notices the difference. She goes behind the other tree. She can hardly wait because... Uh, see, she is... She supposedly hasn't... She hasn't met him for a long time, so she is just... She's anxious. Now is the time for the chorus. The light is dimmed, so you can hardly see these people when they arrive, and that's why they're dressed in a kind of cheap underwear. Because there is no reason to spend a lot of money for costumes when you can't see them. Right? And that's the way the management of this theater feels about it, and that's the way it's gonna be. Here they come. Bread and butter. Now they're all in and they fool around in the dark for a little while. This is a mixed chorus. Bread and butter. Now they're out, they get the money and go home. Next, a baritone comes in and sings, Torre Ador, Torre Ador. But he finds out that he's in the wrong opera. Now, the father comes in, the old man, and he is the basso.
almost now told her what he had to say and she understands him quite well so now she prepares herself to die but before she dies she sings an area the so-called die area <laughs> She seems very happy about it. She dies by stabbing herself between the two big trees. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>